0: Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, Isaiah 714. I was 15 years old and on a first date, so it was a big night for Aaron. <laughs> After trying on five different American Eagle shirts, I made my way over to her house to eat dinner with her family. During the meal, I received a text saying, Blake was in an accident. I haven't heard anything else. I was surprised, but I simply replied, saying that we'd go visit him later that night to see how he was doing, and didn't really think about it too much. We finished dinner, and as I was heading downstairs, I received another message, this time saying how he had been moved to the intensive care unit, and I started to take things a little more seriously. I wasn't able to focus on the night anymore, but I was trying to hold a face to seem as if everything was okay. That was when I received the phone call. And as I answered, all I heard were the words, he's dead, screamed into my ear. Blake was the friend that you always wanted to be around. When we were kids, we would go out to recess and play two-on-two football with our friends. Blake would always choose me to be on his team. And I was bad at football. I mean, like, really bad. Um, There could have been a sign taped to my back saying, if you choose Aaron, your team will lose. And I would say, that's an accurate sign. But he always picked me, and we always lost. Um, We would have endless sleepovers at his house, playing Call of Duty, World at War. And he would always give me extra turns playing because he knew I wasn't allowed to play the game at my house. Um, And I still respect that decision, Mom and Dad, just trying to protect me, I get it. Um, In middle school, he was the courageous one. At middle school dances, when I would be at least 150 feet from the nearest female, Blake would fearlessly ask girls to dance with him. I was not like that all, at all, and at one point Blake literally picked me up and carried me across the dance floor and placed me in front of a girl. <laughs> I believe I passed out due to the proximity of the opposite gender, but it was a nice gesture. <laughs> our friendship continued into high school, where we were locker partners and participated in band and sports together. Every day after school, I would make it a tradition to get to our locker and hug Blake from behind and obnoxiously tell him how much I loved him until he shook me off. On the day of his accident, I saw Blake at our locker, and he was talking to some other people. I didn't want to interrupt the conversation, so I chose not to say goodbye that day, and I wasn't able to tell him that I loved him. A few hours later is when I got the call. Losing Blake was something I was not and could not have been prepared for. Even days after his death, I still hoped for healing begged God to somehow heal Blake and bring him back back so that we could continue living life together, so that we could go to college together. On the day of his funeral, we carried his casket through the cemetery and I watched his family mourn. No parents should ever have to attend their child's funeral. I slowly slipped into a bitterness with God, completely blind to everything else. I at one point vocalized my anger to a friend of mine who told me it was not right to be angry with God so I kept it to myself. I sat in the bitterness for three years until I found myself sitting in Gallagher Blue Dorn, waiting to hear Dave Bartlett speak at the gathering. It was the first time he was going to give a sermon since he lost his son and two grandchildren in a car accident. It was a heart-wrenching service, and about halfway through, he said something that flipped a switch in my life. His words were, faith does not diminish pain. No matter how strong your faith is, it does not make heartbreaking situations any easier. When I was still struggling a few years after Blake's accident, I thought that it must be that my faith is weaker than others. For anyone who might be struggling with pain, remember that your faith will not decrease the hurt. God understands the pain and hurt that we feel, and he hurts with us. Emmanuel means God with us, and he is a father who chooses to mourn with us in the hurt and celebrate with us in the joy. Recently, I have learned a lot about hope from my friend Brian, who is currently battling cancer. He has over 50 tumors in his stomach, yet he is one of the most hope-filled people I know. It's because his hope is in Jesus Christ. He has a tattoo on his forearm that reads triumph, and the first letter T is a cross. When he raises his fist in the air, he is reminded that no matter what happens here on earth, he has already won. He is triumphant because of Jesus. When our hope is in God, we are triumphant. We can rest in the hope of Emmanuel, the promise that God has come and is with us. It's okay that I wasn't able to say goodbye, because I know that one day I will be seeing Blake again. I have found hope and comfort in that promise. We will be reunited in heaven, and I can't wait because we've got a lot of catching up to do. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel.
1: there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flock at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Hi, my name is Brian Rundle. I am uh, graduating this semester with a degree in psychology, and after graduation I plan to work until going to a grad school program for mental health counseling or marriage and family therapy. Just to give a brief background on my life, for those of you who do not know me, I spent most of my childhood living in tumwa. Um Right before seventh grade, my family moved to Pella, and in Pella, I was surrounded by more people that were great influences on me than I could count. And I consider myself incredibly blessed to be able to grow up in such a place and around such amazing influences. I was active in the high school ministry for all four years, and at this time, I grew a lot in my faith, this was also a time period when an important story from my life took place. My dad and I had always had a close relationship growing up, but my senior year became more strained. He was growing a lot in his faith and was taking in lots of valuable material that was helping him grow closer to God. He, of course, wanted to share these things with me, but at the time, I didn't want him to have anything to do with it. One of the authors slash pastors that he liked a lot at the time was Charles Stanley. And I couldn't stand listening to Charles Stanley because I just found his sermons so boring. Um, I was living my life, I felt like I was doing fine, and I was tired of listening to my dad tell me what I should be doing to improve my relationship with God. Looking back, this seems like a pretty normal thing for a parent to want to do. My dad cared about me and already knew what would take me a little while to figure out. The first thing he knew that I didn't was that Charles Stanley wasn't a terribly boring pastor, he was just really old. The second thing he was trying to tell me was that a relationship with our living God is the single most important thing in our lives and that this relationship could be the greatest source of joy in all of, earth, all of the earth. I can now look back in my wise old age of 21 and realize that my dad was of course right. However, I felt that his attempts to share various devotionals and sermons with me were him just trying to force me to become a better Christian. At this point in my life, I felt I knew a lot of things about God but had not yet formed the intimate relationship that makes such a huge difference in a person's life. I knew I could be doing better, and I knew I could be giving more of an effort in my faith. All of my dad's constant suggestions felt like reminders of my failure. This failing was not only failing to please my earthly father, but also failing my heavenly father. I kept pushing back from all of my dad's attempts, and he kept trying to get me to read or to listen to something he liked. Eventually, I started becoming very angry whenever he'd bring up something faith-related. I started saying terrible and hurtful things and at the time I meant every word of it. The most vivid and terrible example I still remember is when I told him I never wanted him to be a part of my faith for the remainder of my life. I didn't want him to ask about my faith ever again and I sure wasn't going to bring it up to him. Since that time, I've reflected and can't imagine what it must have been like to have a son say that straight to your face. At the same time, I was in a small group that was reading a book together. And in this book, it talked about how no matter how great your earthly father was, there are still imperfect humans and leave a father's scar. And this father's scar is something that only can be healed by our Heavenly Father. We all began talking about our relationships in our group, and I started talking about my current relationship with my dad and felt a strong conviction about how I'd been acting and treating him. I realized I needed to make a change and apologize. The next day, I started several thoughts. I shared several thoughts with my dad. I apologized and asked him to forgive me. This was a very difficult conversation to have. I found it was very hard for me to give up the pride and stubbornness I'd been holding on to for so long. Doing so, though, made a positive and long-lasting effect on our relationship. Since that time, my dad and I have continued to grow and strengthen our relationship. And I am so thankful that I have the earthly father that I do who understands and has accepted the grace of God and was able to show me that same grace through some very testing situations. It now brings me great joy talking to him about my life and where I'm at with my faith. I've noticed in life that some of the most joyful moments can come out of the darkest of times. I would never want to go back to how it was between my dad and I, and I am so thankful for the lessons that I have learned and the joy that now comes from our relationship. When the angel came to the shepherds, they were terrified. Who knows what exactly was going through their minds at the time, but I'm sure they thought they were in a really bad situation. As it turned out, the angel was there to tell them the good news that would bring great joy. This dark and scary time for the shepherds turned into one of the greatest moments in the history of the world, Jesus' birth. In my life, I was in a bad place with both my earthly and heavenly father. But because of that time, God has been able to teach me many lessons about, about who he is. I've learned that joy is such a great gift from God. We are designed to find joy in our daily lives, and especially in a relationship with God. When we choose to be close to God, he becomes joyful as well. In Luke 3.22, when Jesus is being baptized and choosing to show his love in return for, to God, it says, and a voice from heaven said, "'You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy.'" God becomes joyful when we, as his sons and daughters choose to love him back. And This story about my dad and I is a great picture of what it will be like with our Heavenly Father. We may have difficult times, We may even be angry or mad at God, but in the end, us choosing to love him back brings him great joy, and he will always be willing to welcome us back into his loving arms. Though there is a lot of joy in our lives, we'd be lying to ourselves to say that that we are always joyful. Sometimes we face challenges that are difficult and unpleasant, such as my experience with my dad. These are the times when it is much harder to find joy, but these same moments God can eventually use to teach us some of the most important and life-changing lessons.
2: This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Luke 2, 11-14. Hello, everyone. My name is Mariah Cooper, and I am a senior here at UNI. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace is a bit ambiguous to me at times. It can manifest itself in so many different ways in the world and in each person's life. I didn't want to get confused when looking at the work God has done in my life through a lens of peace, so I looked at the definition in context of Christ. The word peace in the Greek is irene, and it means the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatever sort that is. I thought to myself, do I live like that's true? Definitely not always. I can put my finger on some very specific instances where anxiety, what I would define as the opposite of peace, has reared its ugly head. My sophomore year of high school, I remember calling my best friend from my closet and saying, I'm in my closet and I don't know why. Looking back, it's kind of comical, but I was in a place of loneliness and fear. I was so worried all the time, and despite all of the friends and support I had surrounding me, I often felt lonely and out of joint. But I got through it only because my Bible study leader in high school would encourage me daily with messages, emails, verses, and reminders about the peace that transcends all understanding, about Jesus who was walking with me daily, and about God who listens to my anxious prayers. I came into college confident in my relationship with Christ. Knowing that whatever trouble came my way, I was dependent on the Lord of all creation. But the end of my sophomore year and into the summer, I felt something going awry. And it continued to get worse. I had put my relationships with others on a pedestal and was basing my identity on other humans. Which is a bad idea. I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression at the end of that summer. I lived alone for my sophomore year and I found my anxiety and depression grow worse in, depression, in isolation. Um, I worked my way, or worried my way, into a pit. I was depressed and anxious most days, and I fell back into fear and loneliness and sin, and nothing I was doing was helping. This pit took a little longer to climb out of because I let it get a lot deeper. But how did I get out? Well, I chose to surrender my life and control of it to Jesus. I knew something needed to change, but I didn't know what or how to go about changing it. I went to a conference over winter break, where they had prayer ministry, and I sat down and prayed with someone. I was hoping they would just pray for me and solve all of my problems, because I hadn't felt like I could pray in a very long time. But instead, she had me imagine that I was sitting with Jesus, and I started talking with him, because that's what prayer is. The Lord gave me some peace, and he was clear about how precious I was to him. I told Jesus that I wanted him on the throne of my heart and I wanted to drop all of the other idols because I was tired of living out of fear and anxiety. I realized that basing my life on a relationship with people was a really wrong idea. I realized my relationship with him was the only foundation that was strong enough. So I asked people to pray for and with me. I kept seeing my counselor I chose to spend time with God, even when I didn't want to. I leaned into intimacy, even when I was mad, because talking to him angry was better than not talking at all. I chose to engage with the hurt, because with my feet planted in Christ, I could battle with the rest of the pain and fears and sin I had been harboring for so long. There was a lot of slipping and falling again and again, and I definitely didn't do it perfectly. I had to choose and re-choose trust, sometimes daily, sometimes hourly. Turning my life back to God was a long and steady process, but God was faithful, and regrowing my relationship with him brought me out of that pit. And here we are now, looking out into the future, realizing that this world is in a lot of turmoil. There are lots of broken people and broken relationships, and so many people without the hope of Christ's salvation. I'm overwhelmed by it often. It's like a recipe for anxiety, but here's the thing. The God of the peace and the God of the universe lives in me. He is peace. He was born peace. He lives in me as peace. In times of trust and in times of anxiety, he is peace. He does not change. The world may change around me, but he never has and he never will. Those of us who live with this peace in us don't need to worry about our grades, what political leaders are doing and saying, or what's going to be happening in our lives in the next year. We don't need to worry about these things. That doesn't mean that they'll go away, but it does mean that I've acknowledged that my without Jesus efforts don't get me anywhere. He will guide me in whatever steps I can take to be part of resolutions and changes, and I don't have to fix everything. But the Holy Spirit lives in me, so I have the power of peace to go through each and every day. God has been consistent and will continue to be consistent as the peace giver in my life. The only thing that has changed has been me, I've been learning a lot about intimacy with God lately. As someone who believes in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I have a guaranteed eternal life in heaven with him. But I also have something equally important this side of death. I have a personal and intimate relationship with him. The closer I am to the father, creator, and author of my life, the deeper my peace grows. It's simple. The closer I am to peace, with a capital P, aka Jesus, the easier it is to engage with peace and feel it flood my life. I don't get this right. I do know, however, that any time of the day, on any day of the week, month, or year, he's waiting for me to choose relationship with him. To choose peace from the only true peace giver and to lean into the most wonderful aspect of salvation, a relationship with Jesus. It's a daily choice. As I choose peace, As we choose peace, we can leave fear behind us and walk confidently into whatever this world throws at us. As you step closer into intimacy, you get to know your creator and giver of all things, which changes everything. So, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Merry Christmas, everyone.
3: For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. John three sixteen. 16. Numb, to, de- to be deprived of the power of sensation, to be deprived of feeling, to feel lifeless. Numb is how I have felt for the majority of the past six years. I have clung onto and stuffed the broken and pain, which deprived me of feelings, deprived me of life, and almost experienced feelings of death itself. In John 3.16, it promises that those who believe in Jesus will not perish, but they will have eternal life. Because of God's love and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, if we believe in him, we don't have to experience death and hell. Instead, eternal life with him in heaven is ours forever. God's love for us defeats eternal death and gives us eternal life. But I've also learned how we can experience a form of death here on earth too and how God's love allows us to defeat that death and experience a glimpse of eternal life here, and not just life, but a life of love. A life of love. Friends, this is what I crave. Throughout my first two years in high school, I attended eight funerals. Three were for my classmates' dads who had suddenly passed away. Three of my grandparents died. One of my friends' brothers committed suicide. And my friend on the dance team died in a car accident. And I soon became numb. Numb to sadness, numb to grief, but also numb to love. Being numb allowed me to be the good Christian girl who focused on always helping others. It allowed me to be successful on the dance team and in the classroom. But at the same time, constantly feeling nothing was hard. And I was desperate to feel anything So I started to self-harm by cutting my wrist. From there, the numbness and self-harm manifested itself in different ways. I actually attended Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota, my freshman year of college. Even though the cutting had stopped, I would describe myself as a zombie during that year. And when you look at pictures from my time at Bethel, there's a deep emptiness in my eyes. I would wake up, sometimes not even change my sweatpants or brush my teeth, go to astronomy class, eat hummus, go to the library, and go to bed. Don't get me wrong, I actually had really great friends who loved Jesus and me. But for whatever reason, there seemed to be a massive wall between me and my friends, and between me and life. The words in Psalm 88 hit it right on the mark when it states, darkness seemed to be my closest friend. But you see, throughout this time, I was never mad at God. I never asked him why I felt this way. I never yelled. I never even cried. Ever. Instead, the darkness numbed me, and the darkness blinded me to his love. The darkness made the feelings of death look a lot more appealing than life itself. I became comfortable in the darkness, my closest friend. That summer, while I was working at Riverside Bible Camp, I decided to transfer to UNI, because God told me to. And I'd love to grab coffee and share it with you sometime if you want. But honestly, when I got to UNI, things were still really, really hard. But one Monday afternoon, I was in the car with my friend at the stoplight right by Caribou, And out of nowhere, I stated, I am not okay. And I have no idea why. This was the first time that I was able to admit that I was in fact not okay. And it was through saying out loud, I am not okay, that I was able to acknowledge the numbness and I was able to acknowledge the darkness. It was the first step to knowing that I wasn't a burden to others, that it was okay to not be okay. Saying these words out loud loosened my grip on darkness and made me yearn for God's love. And through some encouragement, I sat at a table with green chairs and the union, and I made the most terrifying phone call to the UNI Counseling Center, and I went to counseling. And thus started a long journey of acknowledging my depression and my anxiety and how God's love was so much bigger than this battle that I was fighting. That God's love did not want me to dwell and live in this earthly form of death. But instead, God's love desired for me to live an abundant life, here and now. And friends, that was three years ago. And honestly, darkness sometimes still feels like one of my closest friends, as recently as over Thanksgiving break. Sometimes it makes me feel like a burden to those around me. It makes me forget the power of love. It makes me forget that I am God's sweet girl and that Jesus is my closest friend. But love chose me And love keeps choosing me even when I don't always choose love. And that's the Christmas story. God, who is love, himself, chose to send his only precious baby boy into this broken world. And this baby boy, Jesus, chose to love others while he was here. He loved others in big ways, like turning water into wine and feeding 5,000 people. But also in little ways like talking with women on the side of the road and sharing a meal with his closest friends. Love eventually nailed Jesus to the cross, and love chose death for Jesus, so ultimately love could choose life for me. Love chose death for Jesus, so ultimately love could choose life for me. And friends, I need to remember that, that love did not just choose life for me then when Jesus was born, or when he died, but love is constantly choosing life for me, here and now. Love chooses life for me when Abby spends Wednesday nights with me over coffee. And love chooses life for me when I have the opportunity to take medication to help balance chemicals in my brain. Love chooses life for me when humans are sitting in apartment 95, eating my food and giggling with my roommates. Love chooses life for me when Carter and Sarah empowered me to write and direct a gospel mime. Love chooses life for me when I get to talk to my parents over speakerphone. Love chooses life for me through the sunrise on my way to my internship. Love chooses life for me every day. And it's through knowing and believing this everyday love that I am able to step out of the comfort of darkness and experience the fullness that this life has to offer one day at a time, one little evidence of love choosing life for me at a time. And know that God's love chooses you every day too. Know that it's okay to not be okay, and tell someone, whether that's a good friend or a basic staff member or me. And then see how God's love chose life for you on Christmas Day 2,000 years ago, and is choosing life for you today. And he is choosing a life of love for me too. For God so loves the world, that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life." John 3.16.
4: When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8.12. I grew up with an amazing family. My mom and dad always taught my brother and sister and I to treat others well and to have good morals because it was just what you did. We went to a Catholic church when I was younger, but it wasn't until middle school when we started to go to Elevation Church in North Carolina that I actually started to believe what I was hearing on Sundays. But when we moved to Iowa the summer before I started high school, we stopped going to church. We tried to watch Elevation's livestream services online as a family, but the distractions of busy, daily life ended that pretty soon after it started. One of these distractions was softball. I've played and attended softball games since before I can remember. It was more than a sport to me and it was something my family bonded over deeply. At a very early age, it started to become my identity. When I walked around town or when I got home from school, it seemed like every question I was asked was about softball. Everything I did revolved around softball. I ended up coming to UNI to play and so it continued. I scheduled my classes, meals, homework and study time, and time with friends all around my softball schedule. When I went home for the weekend, the question was always, how was softball going? Like I said, it was my identity. Then my junior year of college, I had had enough. The time and energy commitment was too much to bear, and so I quit. I was done with softball. 15 years of my life was spent playing this sport. It introduced me to lifelong friends, taught me numerous life lessons, and gave me something to take pride in. Fifteen years of some of my best memories, and it had all come to an end. Now quitting softball has proven to be an extremely good decision, though this wasn't evident right away. My freshman year at UNI, I became friends with a few girls on the team that went to a local church, so I decided to tag along. I went to church on Sundays and a team Bible study during the week for the two years I played. I believed in God and was told that he loved me, but I felt like I was running away from hell more than I was running toward the Savior. I went to church and Bible study because if I didn't, nothing would make up for the bad things I was doing, like living in sexual sin or gossiping about my friends. This thought process carried over into my junior year. I continued to go to church, Bible studies, and even started attending a college ministry. But with all the extra time I had on my hands, instead of turning to the things I listed above, I started to party, I started to turn to seeking attention from boys and hanging out with their own crowd. After all, softball was my identity and since that chapter of my life was over, I had to go searching somewhere else. I would attend a college ministry on Thursday nights and then leave straight from there and go start the weekend on the hill with my friends. My grades plummeted, some of my lifelong friends no longer wanted to hang out with me, but I didn't care, I was having fun. But this fun started to fade. I realized that the people who I thought were my friends weren't there when I actually needed them. The boys I was seeking attention from were not really interested at the end of the day, and I was living in such a dark, dark place. There were nights that I shouldn't have even woken up the next morning. All this happened for about a year, and then I don't know what it was, but over the course of the summer, away from campus, partying, and boys, I decided to start reading my Bible again. Maybe it was that the guilt and shame was becoming too unbearable, and it was kind of a last resort, but either way, it changed my life. God strategically placed people in my life that year that met me where I was at and loved me through the mess I was living in. I saw something in them that was different different than the darkness I had come accustomed to. They didn't shame me or even tell me what I was doing was wrong. They simply loved me like Jesus does. They listened to me when I needed to talk, sat with me when I needed to cry, and the best thing that they did for me was simply sit in silence and love me in a time when I was extremely hard to love. They didn't encourage the choices I was making, but they definitely didn't condemn me for them either. I was so tired of living in this darkness and I wanted what they had. So I got back to campus in the fall and wanted to get involved. I joined a life group and got involved on some teams through BASIC, and over the course of about six months, God completely transformed my heart. I knew returning to campus wasn't going to be easy, but God was so faithful in surrounding me with the people that I desperately needed. He provided the community and accountability I had been praying for, and the whole course and purpose of my life had changed. Reflecting back on that year, I can now see glimpses of God and how he was constantly pursuing my heart. But there was no aha moment for me. No single day I remember. It was a long, drawn out process of me choosing Jesus over my sin. I was tired of living with all the guilt and shame. And since that time, just a short year ago, I have found a true happiness. The light of the world came in and lit up the darkness I was living in. Jesus says that he is the light of the world. And if we follow him, we will never walk in darkness, but instead we'll have the light of life. What an amazing promise that is. A glimpse of hope in the midst of hopelessness and a light in our deepest, darkest moments. Now I'm not saying that I have it all figured out. I still struggle with past sins. I still have dark moments, but now I have hope. A light that reminds me every single day that I don't have to feel guilty or shameful anymore. I am no longer defined by a sport, what a boy said about me, or my prior way of living. Regardless of my past, I am now a child of a heavenly father that loves me so much that he sent his son into this world to die for and cover my sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8:12